The following audio is from First Baptist Church of Conyers. More information about First Baptist Conyers is available at firstconyers.com. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 45. And this morning, we're, we're going to take a lot of narrative out of the book of Genesis as we've been going through for the last year or so. Some of you might think it seemed like a century that we've been going through the book of Genesis. Uh, But we're going to concise the narrative beginning in chapter 45 through the end of chapter 50 in Genesis. Um, You can go back and read the narrative of the story later, but there are two extremely important statements that are made in Genesis chapter 45 and Genesis chapter 50 where Joseph makes the declaration, if you will, of the providence of God. Now, that's a big word that oftentimes we may not use in our everyday vernacular unless you're talking about the location in Maine, and that is Providence, Maine. But we're going to look at this key doctrine that Scripture teaches throughout of the providence of God. You see, the biblical doctrine of the providence of God is a doctrine that, that I believe that if we as Christ followers, as believers, really take hold of and accept the doctrine of the providence of God, and we live our lives according to the fact that God is working always beforehand and behind the scenes to fulfill His will in your life, His purposes in your life, and to ultimately fulfill His will, it makes the human experience much more tenable. And what I mean by that is oftentimes we look at life in the sense and we say, oh my gosh, what is happening now, right? Without recognizing and realizing that there is absolutely nothing that is in God's hand and under His control and in His provision, and it requires that we trust in a God who is a God who works providentially in our lives to bring about His will, that He works in the power of His sovereignty to bring all things together for His purposes and my purposes, Christ followers' purposes in our lives. Webster defines providence in a way that I think is a very good definition of a biblical definition of the providence of God. Listen to how Webster defines it. He defines the providence of God, of the foreseeing care, foreseeing care Uh, and guidance of God over all the creatures of the earth and the order of the earth. God, as omnisciently or all-knowing, directing the universe and the affairs of humankind with wise benevolence. In other words, if I can kind of put it in southern JMO vernacular, in particular, God is bringing about every event in our lives to fulfill His purposes in our lives and to fulfill His greater purposes. To put it another way, I might say this, that there's absolutely nothing in your life and in my life or world affairs that comes about by happenstance or coincidence, that there is no such thing as luck as many understand life events to be. 
because behind it is a God who is so incredibly powerful and beyond all of our comprehension that he is guiding and governing. And this does not state that life is just simply fate because fate brings us to the point of fatalism. But there's a God who has created all of this worth, and by him, all things hold together. That's why I'm not concerned as to whether or not a meteor is going to strike the earth. Christ has created it, as the book of Colossians tells us, and he is all-powerful to hold all of that together to bring about his purposes. And when I think of the providence of God, or as I try to think of the providence of God, I trip and stumble over my own brain. It's mind-boggling when we think about this. Let's put it in current modern terms and make application to this. It's estimated that today, uh, this very day, there are about 7.2 billion people on the planet Earth, and the providence of God states that God is working in and through the lives of all of those 7.2 billion individuals to bring about His purpose and His will. Currently recognized by the United Nations, and it depends on what material you you read, there are about 193 to 195 nations on the earth today. And the providence of God states that God is working in through every one of those nations and through those governmental entities to bring about his purposes and his will. That's why I'm not really concerned about who's in the office this year or who might be in the office next year. But because behind all of that, God is working his providential plan to redeem all of lost humanity. The Scriptures support heavily this doctrine of the providence of God. While we'll not find the directly the, the word directly in our English translation, you won't find the word providence. Scripture points to the fact that God is pro, that God is all sovereign and that God is providential. Listen to this: Psalm one thirty nine, verse sixteen. The psalmist writes, "In your book, that is God's book, were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me." when as yet there were none of them. Job 14.5, days are determined and the number of months is with you. And you have appointed his bounds and his man's bounds that he cannot pass. Galatians 1.15, Paul says this, that God had set me apart before I was born. Jeremiah 1.5, before I was formed in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Acts 17.28, in him we live and move and have our being. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 23, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. Proverbs 20.24, a man's steps are ordered by the Lord. Proverbs 16, 9, a man's mind plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Proverbs 16, 1, the plans of the mind belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. 
Those are just a few verses all throughout the Old and the New Testament that signal, that direct us to that providential hand of God, that God works long before we ever recognize that He's working, that when we get to that uh-oh moment of life, you know, that uh-oh, what am I going to do now? That God has been working behind the scenes long before you or I ever got to that uh-oh moment. You see, sometimes we get the idea that God operates the way that we do. When an uh-oh moment comes in my life, the first thing I do is I scramble to try to figure out how to undo the uh-oh. But God says, hey, I knew that uh-oh moment was going to be there, and I have already gone behind you. I went before you, and I have gone behind you, and I'm going before you. Just wait. See how I bring it about. As I said, it's mind-blowing to think about that. But let me remind you and me that we are created beings, created in the image of God, and we are finite in our power. We are finite in our abilities. We are finite in our ability to think, to comprehend, to see. And how could it ever be that the finite could fully comprehend and understand that which is infinite? When I was raising my children, oftentimes they may not have understood why their dad made a certain decision that he had made. And oftentimes they would kick and scream. They would want to debate. They would, they would buff up against what that decision had been. But I was making the decision out of one in this illustration as one who is infinite compared to their finite ability to understand and to comprehend. Don't touch the iron. My strong-willed first child would have touched the iron while looking at me in the eye. (laughs) See, we cannot understand an infinite God. Now, we can know an infinite God as He has revealed Himself to us through the Scriptures, but to be able to comprehend and fully understand the infinite God, it is impossible for you and I to do as created beings. Oftentimes, we can get the idea that that God is this object that we are able to hold in our hand and that we're able to look at from every angle and and see all the nuances of God, and, and we think we have God figured out, but we have the scene reversed. In actuality, we are the ones that God is holding in, 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 in His hands, and we can't help but look at Him with awe and say, God, I don't understand. And God says, good, you never will. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, tell us this about God. For my thoughts are higher than your thoughts, and neither are your ways, declares, for my, for your, for my thoughts are, are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see, we have uh, the same problem, I think, that Adam and Eve had in the garden. You see, we have the idea that, that Lucifer himself may have had in the heavens, 
that while God has said and that while God is working, we have the idea that we know better than God. Amen? You don't believe it? Just look at a recent event in your life. God, if I had been you, I might have done this. Look at the state of the world and say, God, you ought to do this. God says, hey, wait a minute. Who are you? Who are you to say to the potter, you ought to make it this way? You see, God is an infinite, all-powerful, all-knowing God. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36, where he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever and ever. Amen and amen. You see, that alone should set the stage for what you and I do as we come in on Sunday mornings for corporate worship, that we meditate, that we spend time contemplating and thinking of the greatness of God and taking it to heart and mulling it over. And I like the illustration of the cow chewing his cud, that we chew it over and over and over. And then as we enter into a time of corporate worship, we cannot help but explode in worship to the risen Christ rather than debating and contemplating and critiquing everything that goes on in a morning service. It'll change the way that we worship, and it'll change the way that God is glorified if we focus on Him and we worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now, the fact is, however, in order to take hold of, in order to walk in this doctrine of the providence and sovereignty of God, it necessitates that you and I put a trust and a faith in the reality and the fact of who God has revealed himself to us to be through the scriptures. You see, when God says that he is, we have to trust and act like he is. If we trust that he is, then we will walk and act and live our life as though he is. Reminds me of a story I read this last week of a gentleman who had, was running along on a mountain crest and he had fallen over the cliff and it just would happen to be that as he was falling, there was a limb sticking out of the cliff and he reached up and he grabbed the limb and he looked down below him and there was a deep gorge and valley and he knew that his life was in parable if that limb gave way. And he looks up to the heavens and he says, is there anybody up there who can help me? And he hears a voice saying, yes, I'm here. He says, is that you, God? He says, yes, it's me, God. And he says, what am I to do? Will you save me from this? And God says, let go of the limb. The man thought for a few seconds, and he turned around back to heaven and said, is there anybody else up there? We have to trust 
that God is a benevolent, holy, loving, omniscient, all-knowing, powerful God, and that he is able, he's able to control all the events in all of the universe. Now to Genesis chapter 45. Brief synopsis of the narrative here is that Jacob, because there's a famine in the land, he sends a number of his sons to Egypt so that they might buy grain so that uh, Jacob and his family wouldn't starve to death. Two years into the famine, he sends his sons there except for one, and that was Benjamin, his other favored son. And as his sons get to Egypt, we know the story that it is Joseph who has been given second in command in all of Pharaoh to make sure that the grain that had been reaped in plenty as God had brought about the rains to give the grain so that it would be stored in order to preserve all the populace from the famine that was to come in the next seven years, uh, Jacob sends his sons there to get grain. Now, the sons get there to Joseph and Joseph is the one who's making the decisions of the distribution, but the sons didn't recognize Joseph. You remember the sons were the ones who had sold Joseph into slavery. 20 years had passed at this time, and, and perhaps Joseph had taken on the look of the Egyptian. Maybe, uh, maybe he had a, a good-looking head like mine and had decided to cut all his hair off, and, and uh, they didn't recognize Joseph at the time, but, but Joseph certainly recognized his sons and as his, his, excuse me, his brothers, and as his brothers are there with Joseph, Joseph is overwhelmed with emotion, and, and perhaps all of the life's 20 years of events were rushing through his heart and his mind. And in Genesis chapter 45, verse 1, it tells us this, then Joseph could no longer control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? Now you can only imagine what must have gone through his brother's minds at that time. This is Joseph, the one that we sold into slavery 20 years ago, and now he's the second most powerful man in Egypt. What is he going to do to us? It's vengeance on his heart. He says, is my brother alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Verse 4, so Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said again, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do you, and do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are five years left in which there will neither be plowing nor harvest, and God sent me before you to preserve you for a remnant on earth and to keep life for many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. 
He has made me a father of Pharaoh and the Lord of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Now, it seems and it appears at this place and this point that Joseph, by the mercies of God, had now been able to forgive his brothers for all of the harm that they had brought into his life. Not only the harm of being sold into slavery, but the harm of being imprisoned in Pharaoh's house and a servant to him and being cast in jail and being forgotten twice and all of the other events that had taken place in Joseph's life. If it had been me and my brothers came after selling me for 20 years into prison, I am sure that I may have responded a little bit differently to my brothers. Listen, I haven't forgiven my brothers for beating me up when I was a little boy. No, I really have. But can you imagine these 20 years? Some of you may be sitting here this morning, and the thought or the memory of an individual a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, who had offended you, who had done you wrong. And when you think of the name, you still get that gnawing sensation in your gut. Joseph evidently had recognized two things, and we're going to look at those in just a moment. But I want you to notice that perhaps over the last 20 years, it's evident that Joseph had spent the last two decades perpetually praying, thinking, rethinking what had been going on. But by the wisdom and the mercies of God, we see Joseph responding very differently than we might have expected him to respond. You see, Joseph had time to look back over all of the events and to see now where he was, and he recognized that God is a providential God that there's nothing that takes place in your life and in my life that does not first filter through His loving and gracious hand. It's easy to recognize the providence of God when we look back, isn't it? But it's very hard to see the providence of God when we look forward, especially when we're facing a crisis in life. You see, I can look back over very disturbing events, events and situations in my life that, that, that we've gone through, and, and at the moment, I could not understand. I would cry out to God, and, and oftentimes, I wouldn't get an answer. Most of the time, I wouldn't get an answer. I would ask the questions, but wouldn't get an answer. I had no idea how this thing was going to work itself out, but now, standing on the other side, I can look back, and I can say, that was God instigating and working through those situations in my life to bring about His purposes in my life and to bring about His purposes in His greater plan. Amen? You see, this grasping hold of, taking to heart the doctrine of the providence of God can help us and enable us to trust Him in whatever situations we might encounter. You may be here this morning and you may be facing a crisis like you've never faced, and you have no idea how it's going to work out, but you can be assured that God has every idea of how it's going to work out to bring about His purposes. Amen? 
In responding to him, he kind of strips away the superficial surface of human activity, the sins of man against the righteous, you might say, to reveal the hand of God. Listen again as I recap these statements. He says, God sent me before you to preserve life. In other words, it was God's plan that he wanted to preserve life, and not only the lives of the Egyptians, but also the lives of those who were in the promised line, the promise given to Abraham that would later fulfill itself out as God would call his people out as his chosen people. He says, God sent me before you to preserve you for a remnant. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Now that is a statement that will blow your mind. Here's why. Because we always have the idea that if something bad happens in our lives, then God is not in control or God is not responsible. Now this is a theological concept that is very hard to grab. But if God is an all-sovereign if God is, 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 is all-knowing, if God is all-powerful, and if God is a providential God, then we know that there's nothing that comes into our life, good or bad, that has not filtered through the fingers of God. Now, we also understand that in, in Joseph's life, in this instance, it was the decision of an evil man or even men, evil men that brought him into that situation. They are culpable for their decision, but behind it, God is a sovereign God, and we have to trust God to work out the details of how that will play out. The last statement he made is, God has made me Lord over all Egypt. You see, these lines that, that Joseph states here are a declaration of his not only knowing, but the fact of God's providential hand, that God works his will in and through the actions of people and circumstances in the world, whether they be good or whether they be evil. We can trust that God works all things together for good to fulfill his purposes. Notice what he says here. This kind of brings in this play of man's will and, and, and God's sovereignty, man's ability to make decisions as he freely makes decisions. You and I can freely make decisions, but God works in those to bring about his purposes. Notice he says, you sold me, but it was God who sent me. Now, how can the two be reconciled? I don't know. When you figure it out, let me know. You sold me, but God sent me. Not you, but God. I love what Donald Gray Barnhouse states in reference to this passage. He says, the jealous hatred of brothers, the dreams of a youth, the passage of a caravan bound for Egypt, the preparation of Joseph by life of adversity, the anger of Pharaoh and the imprisonment of two officials, the strange dreams of these prisoners and Joseph's supernatural gift of interpretation, the dreams of Pharaoh, the change of rainfall in a fourth of Africa to bring about the two cycles of abundance and famine by the flood and failure of the Nile. The elevation of Joseph to the throne of Egypt, 
All these things were brought together, brought about naturally by the supernatural work of God, who is Lord of all, in order to fulfill the counsel of his will. Joseph effectively in this passage is moving towards reconciliation now with his brothers. You see, it's one thing to have forgiveness, but it's another thing to have reconciliation. And Joseph had not only forgiven his brothers, but now he's seeking restoration with his brothers and his family. And I think there are two identifying marks in this passage that tell us what made it possible not only for Joseph to forgive, but also for Joseph to seek out restoration with his brothers. Number one was the admission and the repentance of his brothers. They recognized at that point and at that time that they had sinned against Joseph, they had sinned against their father, ultimately they had sinned against God, and they recognized that and they were willing to repent, to turn from that sin. You and I not only need to be be able to recognize but also repent. And the second key issue I think here is what Joseph acknowledged the providential care of God. Have you been hurt in your life? Have you had things happen to you that you may have had no involvement in at all, no control, and all of a sudden, as a result of somebody else's decisions, hardship, deep hardship has come into your life? and you're having a hard time reconciling that, listen, I don't understand all of this, but one thing I do understand and know from the Scriptures is that God is a providential God. And when we rest in God's providential care, when we rest in God's hand of sovereignty, then we are far greater able to release those other things that may have happened to us by somebody else and trust that God is going to work in this to bring about a greater deed. You see, believers who see and embrace a God who is and what He is doing in their life is able to forgive. God, I want them smitten. <laughs> God, I want you to do to them what they did to me. Then I'll feel better. No, you won't. Trust that God will work His plan. And God is not so limited that He can only use good in our lives to bring about good. No, God is so incredibly powerful that he can use the vilest of evil without violating the will of a human and bring good from that situation. Can I hear an amen to that? I I wrote this statement down. Hatred and unwillingness to forgive comprise the providence of hearts that are ignorant of God's ways and his word. Do we really believe that God is a sovereign God? Do we really believe the old hymn when we sing, trust and obey, for there's no other way but to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey? 
You see, we love to cling the whole to the heritage of these things, but do we really sing them in spirit and in truth? And that's the test. That's the measure of whether or not it is worship in spirit and in truth that the Father desires to have. Now turn over to John chapter, excuse me, Genesis chapter 50. You can tell I get excited about this stuff. Genesis chapter 50, as his brothers are there again with him in Egypt, and, and his brothers had the idea that, that, that now Joseph brought all the family together and, and that Joseph is now going to enact his revenge while they're all present. You see, they're still not convinced that, that Joseph is really going to pardon them, but we see where Joseph pardons them in verse 20 of Genesis chapter 50. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Preceding this statement, as his brothers are, are they're afraid and they, they kneel down before him and they say, Joseph, we're your servants. Joseph says the first time, do not fear for am I in the place of God? Underline that phrase. Underline that phrase. Joseph recognized that it was not his place to try to act God in the lives of his brothers. You see, the Bible says that God declares vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, in this particular situation. And Joseph recognized that that it's not his place to play God in the lives of his brothers and try to make all of this right. As I thought about that statement and that phrase, the thought came to my mind, how many relationships do we mess up when we try to be the Holy Spirit of God in somebody else's life? I have to remind myself, the Holy Spirit has not died and left me in charge. But there's a trust and there's a belief that the Holy Spirit of God can work in the hearts of men and women far better than you and I can manipulate to try to bring about His purposes in their life. You see, sometimes I think we just need to take the posture that we pray and get our nose out of the way. Joseph left all of the personal wrongs that have been done to him in God's hands. Through the sins of wicked men, God can bring about good. That's crazy, isn't it? Through the sins of wicked men, God can bring about good, and He does bring about good. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, when the children of Israel were being held captive in Babylon, 
God writes this to the prophet Jeremiah. He says, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil to give you a hope and a future. And while contextually this verse was written to the nation of Israel, the application can be made in your life and in my life as children of God who follow him. God knows the plans and his plans are to prosper. His plans are to bring favor and not to do evil, but to do good. God loves his children. Amen. Some of us need to hear this morning, if we are Christ followers, if we are his children, that God loves us. His plan is not to bring catastrophe in our lives. His plan is not to bring harm into our lives. God has never, ever, ever had an evil thought towards one of his children. Now, that doesn't mean that you and I as Christ followers won't find ourselves in some hard situations. But God enacts discipline in our lives, and the Bible tells us that He chastens or He disciplines us as His children out of His love. It's never to harm. It's never to bring about destruction. God uses that so we might share in His holiness according to the book of Hebrews. He will chasten us. He will correct us. And we can be assured that He will not judge us in an eternal damnation because our judgment has been taken out on the body of Christ through His shed blood. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 a verse that we're all familiar with that says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Notice the writer doesn't say, and God works some things together for good. No, God uses all things. How much is all? Good. (laughs) Is all things just good things? All things include good things, bad things. God uses all things together for good in the lives of those who are called according to His purposes. So what do we have to do? We have to trust God. We have to believe, we have to take this to heart that that God extends a providential hand in all of the universe to bring about His purposes and His will. Let me conclude with this. T.H.L. Parker wrote this. He said, the doctrine of providence tells us that the world and our lives are not ruled by fate, but by God who lays bare his purposes of providence in the incarnation of his sons. Two questions to conclude with. Do you believe this? Do you believe that God is a providential God, that God is a sovereign God, and God uses everything in your life and in my life to bring about his will and his purposes and good Do you believe that God is using all of the things in the world today, all of the stuff that we see going on 
to fulfill his purposes and his will ultimately for the return of his son Jesus Christ and the establishment of his kingdom here on the earth. Do you believe that God is working in all these things? And secondly to this, will you trust Him today? Will you trust Him in your life's events? Will you trust Him in the lives of your children? Will you trust Him in the lives of your family? Will you trust Him in the lives of those in your vocation where you work? Will you trust His mighty hand in the lives of those who govern in this nation? Will you trust Him in the lives of those who govern? Will you trust Him in the lives of 7.2 billion people to bring about His purposes, His good for His glory? You see, that's the question. I've asked Zach to lead us this morning in a closing song from Psalm 34 because it depicts a lot of what we've been talking about this morning in the fact and the reality that God is a good God. If you want to follow along, you can turn to your original hymnal and look at Psalm 34, no pun intended there, and follow along in the words of this song, and then we'll have some concluding announcements. But in this closing time, I want to ask you to worship God. I want to ask you to just surrender all of your heart, surrender whatever it is you might be dealing with today, whatever it is you might be dealing with from the past, and allow God to do a spirit work, a spirit wrought work in your heart to bring freedom, release, as you trust the sovereign hand of God. Thank you for listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Conyers, located in Conyers, Georgia. For more information about First Baptist Conyers, please visit us online at firstconyers.com.